deep development expertise, it takes time and it takes people. So I think we're getting there, but you got to realize places again like Boston or San Francisco, they've been doing this much longer. And people need to understand talent doesn't just get created out of successes. Talent also gets created out of failure. Um, failure is important because you learn and you're able to actually in a lot of cases you learn a lot more out of failure than success welcome everyone to reboot health i'm your host amol deshpande this podcast is for anyone wanting to learn more about the digital health ecosystem whether you're new to the space and not quite sure how and where to start or if you're already deep down the rabbit hole and just want to learn from those ahead of you this podcast is for you We'll talk with the founders, investors, researchers, and clinicians changing healthcare to understand their trials, tribulations, and successes. In the process, we want to help you to uncover their know-how and also highlight the technology and trends shaping the future of digital health technology. Ali Ardakani is a technical and entrepreneurial corporate development and operations biotech executive. He has over 20 years of experience in managing life science projects and companies. To date, he has taken several projects from concept to FDA approval for medical devices, in addition to several FDA IND approvals. He's the co-founder and managing director of Novator Ventures, a premier global advisory group with over 200 senior life science advisors. He's currently CEO of a Novator portfolio company, Optigo Biotherapeutics, a BC-based ophthalmology development company, vice chair of life sciences BC, entrepreneur-in-residence at Innovate Calgary, and an associate at Creative Destruction Labs. Ali, welcome to Reboot Health. Thank you so much, Amal. Delight, delighted to be here. I'm, I'm very excited to, to have you. I want to just start chatting a couple of minutes, but, but I am very, very delighted to have both you um, as well as have the deep insight of BC, um, the whole life sciences ecosystem, which we'll get into. Um, but before we start, let's maybe take a step back and I like to get an arc of the guest career and maybe how you got to where you are today. And so maybe you could just sort of walk us through that and how you kind of came to that intersection of what I'll call health innovation and biotechnology. Sure. You know, going back about, I guess, 30 years, my family immigrated um, from Iran to Canada. I happen to have lived in a number of different countries. I lived in US, Turkey, Iran, then a, a few months, you know, a period in Europe and Asia. And uh, we finally, you know, when we settled in Vancouver, Canada, I graduated from high school, went to UBC, studied sciences and economics. And um, I think one of the first areas where I fell in love with um, healthcare and how it's delivered was I was actually um, a volunteer. Uh, Friday nights, you can tell I didn't have much of a social life <laughs> at a local hospital. We were try- I was I was actually considering medicine at the time, and uh, you know it was it was considered that you do you put in a lot of volunteer hours. So there was a section called Evergreen House where um, uh, they looked at um, uh, I guess end of life patients or um, really elderly patients that had comorbidities, and uh, it was about a hundred volunteers. Um, I was one of them. Most of these volunteers ended up becoming nurses. So there was, I think, about nine years or so uh, volunteer candy strappers and a few cadets. And I fell in love with taking care of people. But for some reason, um, I, I realized early on that I didn't like the hospital environment. I found it um, uh, quite, uh, unfortunately, I found it depressing. But I loved helping people. And I, you know, just watching the machines and the medicines making a huge difference, even though these patients didn't end up hanging around a long time. Unfortunately, some of them passed away. I realized I'd like to do something in this area. So, um, you know, fast forward a few years after UBC, you know, I started working for a small medical device company, um, actually out of Toolfield, Alberta, called Pulmonox, where we developed um, some of the earliest uh, nitric oxide delivery systems in the world. And um, we designed and manufactured and um, I was one of the early employees where at some point I was actually appointed to, to run the operations of the plant. So for someone who just graduated from university, and it, this was an amazing, um, I can tell you, experience and getting hands-on experience to do uh, many different things. One of the most amazing moments was, you know, getting notes um, and actually experiencing that the devices we were selling 
was saving people's children. And this is uh, infant babies, actually, that are born prematurely. And that's the moment I realized I love what I'm doing. And it almost became an addiction. Um, I had other opportunities to do other things. And, um, you know, fast forward a few years later, I was in New York building an oncology company where we uh, treated terminal patients. And again, the same experience um, came about where we were able to give these very terminal patients extended, you know, better quality of life and, and, and I, I, in some cases, help them live longer. So uh, that's where I am today. Um, and then moving back to Vancouver and creating Novator was about, you know, looking back at my experience and thinking, um, how is it, you know, how can I, uh, you know, take what I've learned over the last, I guess, 15 years and bring it back to Vancouver. And it was the success and failure of every venture I was involved with. I noticed it was correlated to people and that was the talent and the experience and the network. And um, so I tried to create that with Novator to bring global talents to a, to a place that small early stage startups, university um, technology offices, even larger pharmas can access rapidly from around the world. That's fascinating. When I talk to people in the life sciences industry from, let's just say, from the past world, often I find it's a journey as, as yours seem to have been. Do you find that different from students coming out of sort of academia now? Is it more of a destination or do you still see people coming out and having, you know, maybe I'll do a little pharma, maybe I'll join a company, but I don't want to necessarily be a founder because it seems like there's been a shift, right? Like found being a founder of your own company and making your own destination, even in biotech is relatively new. Like, you know, we're probably the same vintage. And as you mentioned, medicine was there sort of working in a lab, becoming a professor. If science had very limited opportunities, at least conceptually they did. Do you think we've sort of, is that dramatically shifted or is that still the bulk of who we see coming out and building companies as sort of, I'm going to call this a journey pathway versus a destination. I'm going to become a founder. What's your sense? You know, that's an interesting point because I remember, um, uh, you know, back in 20, 25 years ago, and then the word entrepreneur was a fairly new word. So um, I think you're absolutely right. I think there is a lot more opportunities to help founders and entrepreneurs now than it was 20, 25 years ago. Okay. And I think people are able to take advantage of that. So, you know, when you roll back time, there wasn't anything like, say, Creative Destruction Lab. Yeah. There wasn't anything like a lot of these angel funds, um, you know, few weeks ago, and I think you attended the panel, I had the opportunity to interview Julia Levy, who was the first female, you know, phenomenal female entrepreneur CEO of the probably one of the most successful Canadian biotech companies in history of Canada, QLT. And she, you know, when, when I talked to her, she said, I was dealing with oil and gas investors, you know, I was trying to figure out how to raise money. There was no support infrastructure. Um, even, uh, you know, organizations like Life Sciences, BC, Biotech Canada, you know, all of these are, they've really have come to life supporting our ecosystem over the last, you know, 15, 10, 10, 15 years. So, yes, I think it's shifted. Um, and I think it's a lot easier now to be a founder because you can surround yourself with a much better infrastructure. Yeah. No, I, I, yeah, it was a fascinating uh, session that you did and to hear Julia and how different a world it was back when she was starting out versus what it is now. It's really is night and day. So it was, it was, it was fascinating to hear her perspective on that. You, you've touched a bit on, on what you do sort of in terms of your main venture, which is sort of Novator. Can, can you tell us a little bit about, a little bit more about that sort of, when did you start it specifically? Was, was that again, for you, was that something that just needed to happen for a Canadian ecosystem? Was it something you sort of fell into? And ultimately, and you said, you know, you want to bring global talent to, to a lot of the founders. What are you hoping that achieves? What are you hoping that that results in from Novator? Sure. So this was a bit of a soul searching for me. So when I moved back to Vancouver in 2014, um, I had sold my company to a U.S. company and I was trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And when I moved back here, 2014, um, actually the Canadian, bio, the BC biotech scene wasn't as as vibrant as it is today. You know, fast forwarding six, seven years later, okay. um, Zymeworks wasn't public. 
Appseller wasn't nowhere to be seen. I mean, Appseller was two, three years old. It's still a young company. Um, you know, there wasn't as much happening. And, um, you know, I looked at the, the quality of the companies and I looked at some of the opportunities and it was, quite frankly, I, I, got, I got a little scared. I had moved just back from New York, New Jersey area where it's a, a hotbed of pharma and biotech. And, um, but one thing that occurred to me is that this, the challenge we have in Vancouver is the same challenge most geographies outside of Boston and San Francisco have. So what Boston and San Francisco have are biotech companies that have become large enough to create what Peter van der Velden calls sticky um, ecosystem, where these you know, successful entrepreneurs can go on and come back and recreate it. The challenge we have here is the same challenge that Denver has, the same challenge as more or less Toronto, Montreal. Most geography outside of Boston, San Francisco lack deep development expertise of, of uh, therapeutic development and outside of Minneapolis, which is a major device development. So I thought, is there possible to create um, a global agency headquartered out of Vancouver? Because that's where I was living, coming back here where I can find best talents from around the world for every project and assemble a team specialized for every opportunity. So, and that's what I started doing. And I started with one client. Actually, my first client was a small Israeli startup out of all places. It wasn't a Vancouver company called AIT Therapeutics, where they had um, acquired some data from UBC that taken the device that we had built at Pulmonox about 20 years ago, back to Israel, and they were running trials in Israel. And um, I was approached by their CEO saying, look, we need to build a new device. We, we've got to do X. You, you seem to have the experience. Why don't you come and help us do some, can you do some consulting? And honestly, he said to me, look, I just need you for a couple of hours. Hmm. And I was still working for the company that I had sold my company. And I said, sure, I'll help you for a couple of hours. And as I, I got delved into it, I realized he needs a, he, they need a lot more help. And it's not even development help. It's actually potentially management. It's fundraising. It's mm, okay. uh, building out a board. And, uh, you know, a few years later, you can fast forward and see the company and the testimonial is on our website. Um, it's a now a three, four hundred million dollar company on NASDAQ. They've filed uh, their FDA approval, which I'm hoping they'll get in the next few weeks. And the, the company has been transformed from small Israeli startup to something else. So, that's what I'm hoping I will be able to do for many startups, including several in Canada. But uh, our reach is global, and we're trying to just um, change the way therapeutics are developed. That's awesome. Do, you know, specifically around BC, and, and it's probably too early, but I'm curious, is more of that talent coming out of BC now, or Quebec, or Toronto? Is it... How long does that trajectory take in your sense? So it's a bit of an unfair question, but you know, when is it that we can reach into our own Canadian pool of talent and, and maybe not do all 100% of the lifting, but let's just say we can find 50% or at least a majority of the talent homegrown, shall we say? Sure. So I think you know, one of the questions I get asked a lot, a lot is, you know, how come BC? And you know, when you think about historically, um, the bottom less than 10 products that are, and I'm talking therapeutic products that have become mm -hmm. major therapeutic medicines out there, um, have been developed across Canada historically. And I think six or seven of them are out of BC. The reason we have that is because, um, you know, 20 years ago or so, we had QLT, we had Angiotech, we had um, Aspriva, we had ID Biomedical. These companies, when they got acquired or sold and, or moved on, that talent stayed on and they created other things. To create deep development expertise, it takes time and it takes people. So I think we're getting there, but you gotta realize places again, like Boston or San Francisco, they've been doing this much longer. And people need to understand, talent doesn't just get created out of successes. Talent also gets created out of Failures. Um, mm. Failure is important because you learn and you're able to actually, in a lot of cases, you learn a lot more out of failure than success because you learn what not to do. 
instead of just to do which may not work the next time. Um, so uh, that's important. I think those places, those geographies just have a lot more. They've been around the block a lot more to see a lot more. And I think we're getting there. I mean, you know, think about the kind of experience that we have around our community with Zymeworks, with Celera, innovative targeting solution, which came, came out of the Abgenics Amgen team and a number of other companies around us. Um, this is, I believe we're now at a critical juncture where we're going to be able to build that critical mass um, for the next, you know, for the next evolution of, of, our, of our ecosystem. Yeah. So, so BC, and I think this came out of your, your life sciences, BC conference recently. It's, I, I think most people on the panel, most people would agree that BC is on the cusp of hitting that flywheel. It's starting to really sort of pick up speed and turn. Do you think it's different in other jurisdictions, you know, whether it's Quebec, whether it's Ontario, whether it's Alberta, is it, you mentioned time, is it just a matter of time or is there some other, let's just call it magic that's happening in BC that's not happening elsewhere other than obviously those early stage founders staying in and coming back in, which you could argue is time. But is there something else that's going Because academically, I mean, we can argue, I'm not going to do that, but, you know, UBC, UFT, McGill, they're all, you know, they're all punching roughly the same amount. It's not that dramatic like Harvard versus some community college in the U.S. So what's, what's magical? That, what's, like, magical? what's the other that's piece? A, that's yeah, the, no, that's a good question. And I think um, there is a number of things. Again, we go back, um, you know, I think we have a very... A cohesive community. When you think about it, being in Ontario, they have two life science organizations that compete with each other. Each other, mm-hmm. uh, Life Sciences of Ontario and, and Obio. Um, we have one here. Um, doesn't answer why we can do certain things um, maybe better than Quebec. Again, I think it's that experience, knowledge, and the fact that the capital has recycled here. So when you mm-hmm. think about people funding startups to fund this startup you need to understand startup in in therapeutics or medtech you need to have people that have made successful bets in the past and are are able to think about okay where am i going to invest which team i'm going to back and which ideas work um we are fortunate here that people made decent amount of capital in their investments um, at some point on QLT and Geotech as Priva and are able to come back and recycle that capital. That, to my knowledge, doesn't exist in, in Ontario and Quebec. The other thing that recently I've, I've come to realization and I've been uh, advocating that we need more BC-based venture capitals. As you may know, um, in, in, therapy, in biotechnology, so Amplitude is here with a, with a couple of team members, but mm-hmm. it's actually headquartered out of Montreal. Uh, Lumira has one. Uh, Richard Glickman represents them. But again, it's a Toronto-based. We actually we used to have three or four back in the mid-2000s, and they, they're no longer here. In some mm-hmm. ways, the fact that we don't have venture capital here, the best ideas have to stand on their own. So we have a very interesting ecosystem. For early-stage uh, funding, the government has created this very successful, uh, what they call um, EBC tax credit, meaning that they incentivize early stage opportunities in, uh, in life sciences. Um, and when you invest, you get back you know, about 30% that year. Um, so to my knowledge, this doesn't exist or it's not as, as elaborate in other provinces. So we have that here. We have those entrepreneurs that have made it round and, you know, round, and round again to, to, to support you. Um, because we don't have maybe these, you know, provincial funds that only support BC, then these ideas get to a stage and they really have to stand on their own. And if they don't, they get fizzled out or they, you know, they just can't move on. So then you really have to be, you need to have a compelling enough idea to attract, you can call it, you know, cross country capital or mm-hmm. foreign capital. And when you look at it, that's has happened again with um, companies like Arunia, uh, which got approval. They're not about a two billion plus market cap. They don't, except Lumira, they didn't have any other investors, um, major investors from BC. Um, it's the same thing with Appcelera, and I wrote an article in Business in Vancouver. Yeah. 
um, except Doug Jansen and his fund, um, there is no other, there was no other VCs from Canada uh, funding Epcelera, but they attracted top tiered capital from, uh, from around the world, including Peter Thiel and other brand names that has made Epcelera what it is today. And that just goes to, it's a testimonial to great science and management they have. Right. So I, I'm going to pull on two of those threads. So, um, cause I, I find them fascinating, particularly the, the Absaleras, um, the Absalera story, given how much we put it in the media. And if you kind of dig in there, it's really interesting to say, well, most people miss that one in terms of venture capital, in terms of Canadian venture capital, right? Yeah. It's, it's the darling that we talk about. So I guess my first question is, is that an anomaly given the Zymeworks, given the, you know, arenas, given the precision nanos, like you've got a lot of good successes is the fact that nobody went in on Absolera is, is it just an anomaly or do you think that's part of a more systemic issue that we're just, you know, Absolera just happened to get kind of through onto the other side, just happened to be the poster child, but are we missing a lot of those companies because of risk capital? I think we're missing a lot of those companies. I don't think it's okay. just Absolera. And okay. I truly think, you know, when I look at it, um, even if you look at Zimbrook historically, um, Ali Tehrani is a dear friend of mine. Um, I knew him from UBC days. Um, there were no major venture capitals backing him right till very end. I think one of the first VCs backing him was CTI. And then nobody was backing him till, till he got very close to an IPO. And there was, he had a number of partnerships, large pharma partnerships, um, US VCs were interested. And then suddenly all the Canadian VCs decided that they wanted to back him and help him raise a massive Series A right before his IPO in 2017. Um, so I think we're missing it. And I, you know, quite frankly, maybe uh, the Canadian VCs, you know, when I talked to them, they said, look, we just don't have as much funding in yeah. our funds to make as many bets. Uh, right. One of them said to me, it's like, you know, my U.S. counterparts uh, counterparts walk into a, um, a casino, they can, they have so much money. The guy has, I don't know, $5,000. He'll make so many bits. I've got five right. bucks. I better make it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense. Um, is, is, so is that, is that still the struggle of BC companies? Is it, is it, I mean, do they, you mentioned the early stage, if they hit the series A, and this may be Canadian-wise, maybe it's BC-specific. Are they good to go? Are they sort of on that on-ramp? Or is it still bumpy at Series A? It's still bumpy at Series B? Um, and, and is that just purely a function of what you just said, which I th I've heard before as well? It's just there's just not enough capital in the system? Or is there something else going on that sort of makes our ride a little bumpier than, than maybe it should be? Sure, sure. So, you know, just for our audience, Series A is when a company converts from um, a seed round, um, a lot of it friends, friends and family and founders into real, what I call real hardcore, honest money from VCs where they will tell you the truth. BC, and I think all across Canada, our biggest gap is Series A. Once you have a Series A with a couple of good VCs, I think you're good to go. And I think we still have that massive gap here. We're very good in, you know, raising up to probably even up to 10 million of seed round here in BC, probably more around five. Series A is when you're talking about 10, 20, 30, and now some series are even larger. When yeah. I started my career, series A was five to 10 million. Now they're doing $50 million series yeah. in, in US. It's funny. It really is funny. But, yeah, the, the um, numbers are drastically I, different. It's different. So I think that still is a massive gap in across Canada, including BC. Got it. And, and, and I guess in your heart of hearts, will we get over it? Is that something you think, you know, and I know, I know, you know, Peter talked about in one of the last shows sort of institutional capital just seems to be missing in this country. If, if, if we can somehow miraculously unlock that, do you think that changes or is this is going to be sort of a continual issue banging on this drum for Canada and, and, you know, we'll proceed despite it. But but it's it's going to be kind of out of our ecosystem for that. Capital. Sure. So in terms of risk, Series A is probably one of the highest risks for venture capital because when you think about it, when you go into Series B, C, D, and so on and so forth, you may not make as much money, but you're you're much more de-risked. 
Yes. Yeah. Series A is where, as I said, you convert that company from um, maybe you want to call it childhood to adolescence or <laughs> adolescence <laughs> to adulthood. It's it's really a big evolution. Um, so, yeah, I think it's going to be some struggle because we need more capital that's that's going to be open to take more risks for that Series A across, across our country, especially when in, including in VC. Got it. Got it. It's a yeah. It's it's an evolving ecosystem. So so having a yeah, I'm going to call you a scientist because you've done your science and you're in that life sciences ecosystem. I've read some of your posts on sort of advocation, advocating rather for a national vaccine strategy. We're in the middle of COVID. I guess a new strain has uh, just been identified. So I, I could push you to the edge, and and I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think about that. Just coming out of South Africa and Hong Kong, and I guess it's got. Uh, change in spike proteins, and they're suggesting the current vaccines don't work. So um, I want to get your sort of quick thoughts on that. But in terms of the national vaccine strategy that that I think you've posted on your site as well, people, if, if, if you want to read it, when I read it, it, it had, for me anyway, uncanny parallels to the history of Kanop biosciences, mm-hmm. you know, just in terms of how they started and how sort of you know, John Fitzgerald came in because of the it wasn't enough rabies ac- uh, vaccine access, and had to go to New York. And the same thing with diphtheria, um, and, and it just it resonated with me. So I'm wondering, is your advocacy around national vaccine strategy was that a post around? Okay, listen, we've just been wiped out through COVID nineteen, and nobody was prepared. Or is this? Are you going deeper with this to say, you know what, we can kind of reinvent, for lack of a better word the biotech ecosystem in Canada and really stand out. Where are you sort of, where was that post heading to? Yeah, no, I think, I think it's the latter. Look, I think I love Canada. I think it's the most, it's the most amazing country in the world. I'm blessed to, I'm blessed and very fortunate to call myself a Canadian. I've, I've had the fortune of experiencing other living in other countries. Um, I think what has happened is over the years, the Canadian government became complacent being next to um, being able to access whatever they needed when they needed it from from other countries. When you look at G7 countries, we're the only one without a major uh, global pharmaceutical. Our pharma companies are all generic houses. Basically, we rely on everyone else to bring in their drug, sell it. Uh, we now negotiate the heck out of them in terms of pricing. Doesn't doesn't bode well in terms of having them invest in R and D. By the way, but be, let's dis- discuss that in another talk, maybe. But um, what we do is again exactly what has happened with Connaught Biosciences, and it was interesting to know that um, Peter worked there um, yes. for a short period, and. Um, I think as a country, we need to understand that health and our drugs and critical medicine is a matter of national security. This is as important as, as, in, as, important as your army, it's as important as your, if you have a nuclear arsenal, it's as important as anything else. And we saw what happened. We, when the COVID happened, we tried to do a deal with the Chinese. They didn't, you know, pull their weight. They walked out, even with Americans. And I love Americans, and I think it's, 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 we're actually very fortunate to be their neighbors. They gave vaccine to their own people they, before they would send us any. And we need to understand that, at least for vaccines, and I'm thinking it should be broader, for critical medicines, we need to have the capability of manufacturing and innovation and able to keep that in Canada. Because heavens forbid you, you get another thing like COVID-19, you can't be relying on everybody else because everybody will turn insular around the world, yeah. around the world to look after their own population. Nobody owes, the Brits don't owe Canadians anything. The British government looks after their own people. Americans are looking after their own people. The Russians and the Chinese are looking after their own people. We need to look after ourselves. And my argument has been, this is exactly what with Connaught yeah, and also Armand Pratt here in Montreal the problem seems to be that the biotech labs get bought out by multinationals, and that's fine. It's free econo- economy. But there have been cases where, uh, for example, when GSK went to Belgium, they, there was 
laws or there were incentives to say, you keep this facility here. You can own it, but you're going to keep this facility because it's a matter of national security. And I think that's what the government needs to, you know, come about or have our own, you know, facilities with our own innovation so that we don't have to rely on everyone else. I'm going to ask you to prognosticate a bit. Do do you think this was big enough of, I mean, in COVID-19, is this a big enough of a wake-up call for government to change that trajectory? Or is this just going to be a little two-year or maybe 36-month blip and we'll go back to our traditional focus on natural resources, manufacturing, like wh- where we were? I think it really depends on how long COVID will last. And until a few days ago with a couple of COVID mm-hmm. treatments coming out of Merck and Pfizer, I was starting to feel better thinking, you know, by next March, at least these treatments will be out there enough to bring the viral load down in the community as a treatment and even the places that don't have vaccines. But now with this new variant coming out, reading about it just like you yesterday and today, I think the longer COVID hangs on, the more people will think twice about not having something um, secured in Canada uh, so that we can rely on. So a slight silver lining in an otherwise extremely dark cloud, I guess, is, exactly. is the one way of looking at it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I, I want to pull on the Connaught bioscience thread, because again, I was just it just resonated with me so much, your post in Connaught. And I want to read you a, 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 a quote that I heard, because it'll get to you know, the, the ultimate question. And, and the quote was this, when asked by reporters why the university, meaning the University of Toronto, was involved in such an unusual manufacturing enterprise, referring to Connaught. Sir Edmund Walker, chairman of U of T's Board of Governors, explained, through the laboratories, the universities would extend the work it is carrying on as a great instrument of good for the entire community, apart from the educational purpose, by way of direct service for the betterment of general conditions throughout the country, end quote. Have we lost that spirit, Ali, in Canada? Is, is like, in terms of translating academic research in the context of biotech, to commercialization. Is that spirit still robust? Have we lost that spirit? What are your thoughts on that? And and I guess, you know, does it does it even vary? Maybe it's maybe it's there in BC and Alberta, and maybe it's missing in Quebec and Ontario. I don't want to get into provincial infighting, but I'm just curious what your sense is as you work closely with both academia and commercialization. Is that spirit to take this stuff out and do bigger things with it? Is it still there? Is you know, you're you're absolutely right. And I think in this day and age, everybody is looking for, um, people are thinking more tactical instead of strategic. Everybody's living, companies are living quarter to quarter. Um, unfortunately, we have become short-sighted. Um, it's a sign of times. And I think when I, when I hear that quote, I think I agree with you. I think we require a broader vision. We require, we, as Canadians, I think we're except, an exceptional nation. Mm-hmm. And this exceptionalism needs to transcend through the way we look at our innovation. And we can't be looking at how quickly can I turn into a few dollars. It needs to think about, you know, how, how is this going to change the masses, not just across Canada, but around the world. And this brings me to my next thing. You know, when you talked about the government. You know, one of the issues we have is most of our innovation in Canada, you know, let's Fast forward, when you get through the funding, you get it developed, you get it to market, mm-hmm. most of them don't end up back in the Canadian scene. Yeah. They end up treating Americans, they end up treating the Europeans. It's very, very difficult to get reimbursement um, apart with other countries in Canada. So a lot of our innovative solutions that are funded by Canadian taxpayers, to a large extent, we have SHRED and IRAP and others, yeah a lot of these universities, actually don't help Canadians. So if the government wants to be innovative and really take us to the next level of exceptionalism, they should have a Made in Canada strategy where you promote Canadian innovation to be developed and commercialized first in Canada. Yeah. No, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think you heard Peter certainly on board with that concept as well. And I think... That that seems to be, you know, as we as we retrench a little bit, all global nations. I think that that's going to have to be part of part of your sort of overall strategy, as you suggested, right? Is is you need to think about how your nation is going to 
um, support its its citizens when something like this happens because it's it's everyone for themselves. Um, and and if we have this sort of idea that you know we're all going to do this, then I don't think that's going to work out very well. Um, so so we are still in the middle of the pandemic. Um, hopefully hopefully closer to the end. Uh, you work with a lot of companies, uh, and you know the last two years. So I guess one of the challenges everyone thought people had to come into Canada in terms of senior talent. They had to set up from wherever it is, Boston. You got to make your way to Toronto, New York, Montreal. The pandemic showed us that talent is much more fluid, right? Um, for for everyone, not just Canada. So that's the flip side of it. But do you see early venture? biosciences companies, are they changing the way they work? Are they changing the way in terms of how they build companies, what they expect you know, to have locally and what they can afford to have across the border, whether that's the US, whether it's China, whether it's fine talent, wherever it is, is that changing? And, and how should founders think about this going forward, even if, right, or when I should say, COVID-19 resolves? Is this, a, is this a better pathway to build companies going forward? Or do we go back to sort of the old system where all the talent has to be co-located? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think it goes what stage your your company or your venture is at. But I remember um, when I was um, starting our biotech company in uh, New York, New Jersey area, this is back in 2000, uh, 2006, 2007, when we talked to VCs and said, look, it's going to be a virtual company. They didn't like it. Nobody liked it. They they said, "Don't mention the V board." You know, you want to bring everybody <laughs> around. You, we want to see a building. We want it. No, seriously. Yeah. Wow. And you know, fast forward ten years later, if you're if you don't start with a virtual company, nobody will find you. Everybody wants mm. you to start virtually, and it's for two reasons. One is the way I always advocated is, look, you're developing a global product. You're not developing a product for for Canada or BC. You're developing a product that has to be globally competitive. So you better be damn sure to get the best talent around helping you. You know, this is the path everyone wants to take is not a brand new path. This is a path that's been taken by many people. You find who's taken that path and you ask them for guidance and help you through that journey. You don't need to, not everybody needs to learn for the first time. And by the way, experience is something that by the time you, a lot of time you get it, you don't need it. It's too late. So you might as well use that experience. So I think that, um, I think that's actually has changed because all, most companies that are now started, even by VCs, they start virtually. Of course, you get to a critical point where you need to have your own labs. You can't rely on CROs or contract research mm-hmm. organizations. And sure, then you have to have the brick and mortar, or if you need to, um, start selling your products. You, you do need your staffing. You can't just contract that out all the time. So company like Appcelera, absolutely. They're at a stage that they, they do need to have the brick and mortar to, to build out their facility and capabilities. But you know, most of these other st- early stage startups for the first couple of years, absolutely. Find the best talent. Work out of your home garage. Nobody cares. Um, you know, people were worried that with um, COVID, you won't be able to do fundraising. More money was raised last yeah. year than ever before. People using the same platform as, you know, you and I are talking on Zoom yeah. and others. Um, so it's absolute, absolutely able. It's important to have that in-person connection, but it's possible to get good work done, raise capital and build your company early on virtually. Right. So, so. It's it's interesting because one of the things that I think Peter and I think you mentioned it as well is you know people come they get attracted Vancouver's obviously a, a beautiful part of the country lovely mountains the ocean um, all that is there so if things are going virtual and now um, you know China's competing with the U S and we're competing with Israel and in UK et cetera et cetera what is the unlock for that senior talent to come here does it does the common does the common sort of um, denominator become capital? Because it's always good science. So I think without good science, no one's really that interested. Does it retrench back to now capital where whoever has the biggest dollars attracts the best talent because I can stay I in, capital, you know, I can yeah, stay somewhere I don't think, else. I don't think it's just capital. I think at the end of the day, um, capital actually follows, ta- my opinion, yeah. capital yep. follows sophisticated talent. Sophisticated capital follow sophisticated talent and sophisticated science. So if you have the best talent pool of mm-hmm. people, 
you know, when I look at it from my point of view, so we have a small fund in Novator. I back people that a either I believe in them um, or they have a really good track record and I know that they can do this again. Um, and in a lot of cases, I talk to people that have just been able to have a couple of successes under their belts. And I asked them, I said, what are you going to do next? Because I'd like to back you. So people need to understand that at the end of the day, sophisticated capital is looking for those types of people. Mm, it's not okay. just, just science. Now, of course, if you have the capability and a lot of the most more sophisticated venture capitals, say like, like Versant, they have that um, capability where they say, look, but even they'll tell you, we build the teams first, then we look at themes and then uh, plans and then opportunities and how we can fund them together. But it, it all boils down to where you can find capable people who can, who can pull this through. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Talk, talk to us a little bit, Ali, if you can, about sort of this notion, of, and I'm hearing it a lot, and, and this is sort of a new sector for me, is platform companies. We hear it a lot in tech, starting, at least I'm starting to hear it much more frequently in biotech. Tell us a little bit sort of, you know, what is it? Why is it happening now? What are the advantages of a platform company? And I guess ultimately, how does it, how might it change the ecosystem of local areas to have a platform company versus a single isolated therapeutic company? Sure. So think of a platform. I was trying to explain this to my son the other day <laughs> and, um, and he's 11 years old. Perfect. It's going to be perfect for me. With, with Legos. And I said, platform company is like saying i've got legos so uh, you've got all sorts of lego pieces and that's the platform is the lego and you can have different types of platforms another kind called duplo lego or something like mm -hmm. that they build differently but ultimately with it you have many different possibilities of what you can build for different modalities or diseases we see a lot more of it now um, because the way we're looking at medicine, the way we're generating therapeutics, um, it's more around uh, it's more around computational chemistry and biology than it used to be. So that uh, intersection of so Zymeworks was the same, Accelera is the same. That application of bringing board, you know, AI and understanding how chemistry works and biology works and bringing them all together is, is one, of the, one of the key things of how a lot of these platforms work. Now, of course, there are other platforms that are just 100% biology-based and it doesn't, have, doesn't use more traditional ones, doesn't necessarily use maybe computer AI. But with a platform, you get a lot more opportunities than one. Now, the critical thing with any platform company is that, and I was trying to explain to my son the same thing, is that you need to be able to build something interesting. So you still do need that little booklet that you know mm, okay. is, comes with your Lego, and you do need to be able to put it together. And at the end of the day, the value of Lego is what you build with it. And it's the same thing with any platform company. So people say, what happened with AppSiller? AppSiller was able to bring, use its platform, but very rapidly, show the world that we're able to bring a treatment to masses. And the treatment was authorized by FDA and the treatment went into human trials and treatment was, uh, was able to actually treat patients and make a difference. So people said, oh, that platform works. Now yeah. I want to work more with that platform. It's the same thing with Zymeworks and others. So that's, the, you know, that's why you see a lot more of it. And the way to create value to that platform is actually to be able to drive out products and prove your platform actually is working. Yeah. So, so one of the ways I've I've heard it described, which I think is exactly you use the Lego analogy, which is great because I, I I love Lego, but I, I've heard about it is about the goose that that lays the golden egg. The old world was about feeding the golden egg. It's more about feeding the goose now. You still have to prove it lays the golden egg, but you want to put your effort into feeding that goose because it's the other legs that it will potentially lay in the future. Sure. How how does that does it make does it change how ecosystems get developed? Does it make it easier if you have a platform company that can set up and continually put out different therapeutics over amount of time, or 
all else equal, it's about the same. If you have one company putting out a therapeutic that does really good, but only does one thing, what's your sense of how no, that might No, definitely. Change? Yeah, definitely. It's uh, because platforms can be multidirectional and they're a lot broader and they bring in a lot different types of expertise together. It builds a broader ecosystem. So people say, how are we different? I mean, this is a question I've been, I've been asked um, as when, when we're different panels. How is this, and I call this the second renaissance of, of um, life science growth in BC, um, how is this different than the ones that they had in the early 2000s? Mm-hmm. So when you look at it, QLT was, had one really successful product, Visiodyne, and then the other one was Angiotech at the tax extent. Both of them were single products. They were not able to um, generate as many success or any other successful products. And unfortunately, those companies um, you know, didn't pan out long-term. Whereas where we are now, and you can look at our neighbor in the South, it's called now CGen. It used to be called Seattle Genetics. Seattle Genetics had their specific um, linker. They developed this linker that everybody want, realized that they like to use for antibody conjugates. Um, ADC linker. And um, it was struggling until the first product came out. They, they developed it with Genentech and it showed that the linker worked. Mm-hmm. From then on, it's been on fire. It's, they're now, they have so many collaborations. They've got their own products on the market. It's the same thing needs to happen here. And I think it will to show that that Zymeworks platform will have not just their first product, we will have several products, same with AppSeller and others. Got it. Got it. That's fascinating. What are you seeing, you know, and I don't want you to name specific companies unless you feel comfortable, that's up to you, but what are you seeing that's really getting you excited in the BC ecosystem, whether it's platform companies, whether it's non-platform companies? What are you seeing that maybe we're, let's just say three to five years early on this? but is really getting you excited that's coming down the pipeline that if, you know, if all the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, is really going to be an impressive venture coming down. And, and, and when I say venture, I'm specifically talking about technology. Is there anything going on in BC that maybe you aren't seeing elsewhere or that BC is really lifting above its weight on that's coming down the pipeline? Not, not quite there, but it'll get there for sure. Yeah, so I'm, you know, I think in terms of themes, I'm not going to specifically name companies, but... Yeah. Look, we have strengths in several themes that I think we're, you're going to start seeing a lot of interesting coming out, companies coming out, in addition to Epsilon and Zymeworks coming out, which is antibody discovery. We saw a couple of companies in that space present at Life Invest in BC mm-hmm. conference that I think are pretty exciting. I think our radio pharmaceutical companies, um, we have a couple that are pretty exciting. One is founded by um, Epsilon and Admara called Abdera. Um, and we also have Alpha 9, which just pulled in a Series A from uh, USVCs. Um, then you look at, um, I think the other area that is pretty exciting is uh, being able to manage the, the 3D bioprinting companies like mm, Aspect. Yeah. You think, I think that we have a lot of uh, exciting areas around that. And of course, last but not least, you know, I consider BC the mecca of. Uh, lipid nanoparticle yeah, delivery exactly. system for the world. I mean, again, as you, you've mentioned, precision nanosystem, um, Aquatus, um, all of these companies and the expertise and the labs that are all associated with Peter Cullis, yeah. this is this critical mass that I think the world comes to to gain knowledge and experience from. That's awesome. I, I look forward to seeing a lot of those. So I'm, I'm mindful of time, Ali, and, and I really want to thank you for spending your time. The final question I like to ask sort of all my guests is, you know, as, as we look to change the healthcare system, we'd like to improve it, make it better. We're looking to the future. You know, the reality is our healthcare system does a ton of things right. What, what is it that you hope doesn't change as we move into the future five or 10 years down the road as we bring in, you know, obviously the biotherapeutics, new diagnostics, new digital health? It'll be a different system, but what do you hope stays unchanged in the future relative to I'm hoping, um, well, we have, I think, you know, given the world we live in, uh, we have a, we're very blessed to have a healthcare system that's accessible to everyone. Uh, now, parts of it 
you may have some inefficiencies. Uh, if you want to see a specialist, you can't for months. Uh, mm -hmm. And th there needs to be ways for people that need it um, are able to see it. What I'm hoping that we will keep in this ecosystem is access and actually really improvement of access. Mm. And also what I found with, I think, the silver lining of COVID was it, um, by applications of digital health, by telemedicine becoming a lot more available, it made access a lot better. And I'm hoping this will continue and, you know, access to electronic uh, medical records, access to be able to see a specialist faster, access for different people in your system, in your healthcare system, to communicate with each other faster. And this is something that I think Alexander Greenhill brought up in your talk a few weeks ago, and that's, that's what she's working on, which is critical. We have still a lot of inefficiencies within our system, which can be addressed with our own technologies. And I'm hoping we'll do a better job using and utilizing these technologies to, uh, to bring better healthcare to everyone. Fantastic. Well said. So Ali, if, if people want to keep in touch with you, whether it's researchers coming out of a lab, future founders, existing ventures, capital allocators, what's the best way to stay connected? Please uh, reach out to us. Um, our uh, email address and contact information is on our website, www.novator.ca. And would love to, uh, to hear from you. Fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been a phenomenal hour. Thanks for spending the time, Ali. Thank Appreciate you, Amal. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reboot Health. I hope you found it insightful. Please join us again for our next guest as we continue to explore the fascinating changes that will take our health system into the digital age. Until then, stay well and stay safe.